Every day we hoistle in at Pilots and Pictards Podcast. Welcome to the Pilots and Pitards Podcast. This is Drew. I'm the pragmatic and bleeding heart cyclops of this podcast. I'm Jimbo, the anti-millennial, non-conforming, existentialist, pilot critic, and Kenny of the podcast. And I'm the motherfucking magical Miss Mo, master of pilots, nobos, and spoilers. Uh, no Liz, the mother of Kat this week. She'll join us soon. And this is the podcast with nothing much ado about aircrafts, but potentially everything ado with the first episode of a filmic series. Uh, disclaimer. Uh, Petard is a word. It's a real word. Petards are bombs. Look it up. Read your Shakespeare and incorporate it in your daily vocabulary. You will impress someone that you know. In addition, Pilots and Petards is a proud member of the But Why Though podcast community. And we'd like to thank today's sponsor, Fitz, for the ad-free listening. Thank you, Fitz. And thank you for HBO Month. Thanks, Fitz. And also, thank you because HBO Month lasted for more than a month. So thank you for two months of our HBO subscription. Uh, here's a real quick fuck you for Crooked Media for your Crooked Piece of Shit ads. Also, fuck you for Bill Maher and all the other annoying get-off-my-lawn baby boomers who have ruined the planet and the economy before 2040. I am down for some kind of Soylent Green-style recycling system for Bill when the time comes. Um, where's my spoon? If you'd like to contact us to sponsor a show or slander a rival, we are more than willing to do so for money. And if you enjoyed today's ad-free listening, then you owe us. We could stack never-ending crooked ads and create sob stories as to why we need your money, but we don't. Repay your debt now by clicking in the show notes for the survey. If you've already taken the survey, thank you. Tell one other person about our show if you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome back to the extended discussion. If you want a spoiler-free evaluation, check your podcast app or our website for the mini-sode on Six Feet Under. We also have a link in the show notes if you want that spoiler-free episode. And now we're going to move on. We're going to go into part two of the podcast. This is the filmic analysis and interpretation of the story. As we kind of mentioned, the spoilers are going to run wild now. We we are letting Mo out. You know, We're taking the leash off, and Mo is just going to spoil any and everything she wants. And as always, we're going to start with our Crabman Award. This is a character with a small role but giving large contributions to our viewing pleasure or the overall story. I want to give it out to the cantaloupe dude at the grocery <laughs> store. He he was just so awkward, and that's it, really. It was it was a funny scene, and I felt for her and her meth come down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it involved most favorite character of the pilot. <laughs> she was losing her fucking shit. <laughs> Seeing her smoke meth. Definitely helped me understand the pilot a lot more. Like uh, that was one of the scenes I missed <laughs> the first time. Part. Yeah, <laughs> and then got the phone call like a second later. So my crab man was. Um, it was very early on in the show, Jimbo. You might have caught it the second time you watched, but that old grieving man when it's like an old woman, um, and Michael C. Hall is talking to him, and the old man is like, "If there's any justice in the world, she's shoveling shit in hell." <laughs> And I was like, hmm. To me, that was a funny and amusing moment. And also, like, the way that he reacted or, like, didn't react was, that was pretty funny in my opinion. What do you got, Mo? Where's your crab? I have to go with yours, Drew, because I, like, l- literally laughed out loud in that part. <laughs> because he was, it's just so funny. You thought it would be, like, this sweet old man missing the wife he's been with for, whatever, a million years. And he literally just over her dead body wishes her... <laughs> To be in hell. <laughs> he just really delivered his line very well, that old man. I didn't expect that to come out of his mouth. I really didn't. And it did. And I was like, damn, Grandpa. 
Yeah, I'm cool with that because also like to me that is kind of like the funny old person humor. Like old people say whatever they want and when it's not racist, it's usually pretty funny. Or sexist. You're right. Or sexist. That's a good point. Depending on the sexism. Some of the sexism hits. Yeah. I mean, it all depends <laughs> on who's lands. delivering the joke, too. <laughs> all right. Well, it looks like the old grieving man wishing hell on a dead person is going home with the Crab Man Award. <laughs> all right. We got our we got our first geriatric crab. We're going to move into the most valuable part of the pilot. This is our MVP. It can be anything on or off screen. So Drew definitely hates Nate, but I I didn't hate Nate. I actually kind of like Nate, to be honest. And there's <laughs> this one part where he's kind of going off and he, and, he, and I'm just going to quote him, but he's like, I don't have the discipline to floss every day. I've had four root, root canals. And I just thought that part was hilarious. Like I'm 35 and I've had four root canals. Yes. Well, I mean, I think it's a funny line if he's not the hero. And, like, he's very clearly, like, painted as, like, oh, he's the reluctant protagonist stepping in and he's going to hold this family together and he's always had it in him, See, but I now he's going to step it I didn't get that at all, man. Really? Really? Yeah, no. I mean, I think... It was kind of corny, though. He was corny. He's... I guess he is in it maybe slightly more than than uh, his brother David but I feel like there's almost an even distribution. Well, but at every turn, like David, like gets these opportunities to be like awkward and resentful and not social. And at all these opportunities, Nate gets to like have casual sex with an attractive woman. And he gets to like be the cooler, older brother who helps his little sister not tweak. Like it just kind of seems like he's given a lot of opportunities to be the hero. And I'm like, why? Like, I don't know. It kind of seems like, it was this time and place where, like, it was like, oh, what another lovable loser. Like, and I'm like, ugh. Like, that dude's a douche. He doesn't really help his sister. But you like him. Like, I think people are supposed to like him. And I'm like, why? Maybe as, you know, a 35-year-old loser myself, I can kind of relate, I guess. I'm not sure. You're not a loser, Jimbo. Don't hold him up, Jimbo. Like, brush your fucking teeth. Floss. Like, I think you have your shit. I think you have your shit together more than Nate does. I think you're in a better life place than he is, dude. Barely. Well, that that was a good part, though. That was a good part. It was a very relatable, like, nail on the head. To- I mean, who can't relate to that? I, nobody yeah, likes nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not like Nate's character. Um, I Well, I would say, like, I don't like how they position him in the show. Like, he was kind of set up as, like... Our guy, you know, like, well, I was like, do you think there's a character that was set up more as like a central protagonist than him? Because I think that he just got a lot of favors based on the script. He got to have like, I'm sorry, but dude, at his whole funeral scene, like, it just seemed like a really kind of disrespectful thing for like the rest of his family for him to just have like a temper tantrum about him thinking society is bullshit. It kind of reminds me of like reading Catcher in the Rye when you're 16 and thinking it's like the coolest anti-establishment shit. And then... When you're in your 30s, you're like, man, Holden Caulfield's like a whiny white privileged bitch. Aw, <laughs> oh, dude. I did, see, you know, maybe we just disagree because I love Catcher in the Rye and I read it when I was probably 31 or 2. Well, then maybe had you read it as a 16-year-old and gone through the whole, like, like Catcher in the Rye is like a real thing. Jimbo, read it in 20 years. <laughs> like, reading it at two different phases in life, like, I don't know, like, this kind of reminds me of like, catcher in the rice syndrome that that's what nate has 
Yeah, I mean, I th- well, I think that's one of the things that the pilot's doing well is, you know, it's you're dealing with the theme. And this and this was my question I was going to ask. Like, is Nate's what's, what's Nate really struggling with? Is he struggling with his dad's death or this idea that he's going to die? Or is he actually just struggling with being a loser in life? Like, what's his actual struggle? Because he's he's definitely he's he's having a midlife crisis for sure. That's the point. What is his fucking struggle? Like, oh, I'm sorry you're having casual sex and you have a great head of hair. Like, you live in a cool city and, like, there's zero expectation for you and you dropped out of college, but your life appears to be fucking fine. And your biggest problem is that you have bad dental health. Like, that dude's life seems to be fine, except for the fact that, like, he just doesn't want to do anything. So this this kind of goes back to the meaningless job discussion as well. His struggles are real, though, dude. Like, a lot of people, I don't think these these so-called, like, your life is fine. I would say his life is obviously not fine, dude. Also, he he has a, a moment where he distinguishes himself before his dad dies and after his dad dies. And he says, I up until today, I considered myself a relatively happy guy. He said that. So I don't think I think he's just going through the loss of his dad and reflecting on like, I think it's a more of a reflection of that. I think he I think he was unhappy, though, because like he did talk about like his job sucking like he'd like in the moment of reflection with his sister he talked about his job sucking but yeah but again everything in the pilot happens after his the loss of his dad so it's just a different person so you think he's just coming to terms with losing his dad not necessarily like coming to terms with the fact that he's going to die himself because i think both the family should be more in touch with death than your typical family because they deal with death for a living but He's, but he's a, but he's away, I guess. So maybe, so maybe his struggle is supposed to be exaggerated because he, this is not his profession. Yeah. I think it, I think if anything, his way of grieving is clashing with everyone else's because I think the others do it so often and they do it almost robotically that that's kind of what they're doing. And he's more like dramatic and I traveled through Europe and I've seen shit. So I know how to grieve and whatever. And then he wants it to be more like sensational. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to act proper. That was really awkward when he like straight up fought with his siblings and his mom like over as they're lowering his dad to the ground. Like, what the fuck, dude? Get a hold of yourself. So, Hoisters, we're we're supposed to be an MVP, but but we definitely jumped the gun on the literary analysis. What's someone <laughs> else's MVP? And that's fine. <laughs> it's a freewheeling podcast. Uh, Federico was glorious. Um, he was really funny in like all his scenes. His acting was great. Um, and again, it was a dude who just played everything mega sincere. You know, like, there, I don't think there was a point in the show where, like, he was kind of being satirical. Like, he kind of seemed like what a normal person who worked at a funeral home would act like. You know, like, that's his job. You know, and he seemed kind of happy to work there. And then it seemed funny when, like, the ghost dad was like, why are you working on me, not Frederico? Like, his hands are gifted. So, I don't know. I just like the dynamic that he added to the show. He was really good. And he was just so... um proud of his work like when he described the lady getting shot in the face by her husband and (laughs) the way he made her face look it was good that's like that's a good one drew so i think i kind of gave mine away pretty early on in in our recording but the daughter whose name i'm not remembering right now not a good sign claire um i just loved her whole the whole storyline of what she was experiencing and just her perspective of she was definitely like the after afterthought child. She's way younger than everyone. So that puts her in a unique position, I think. And I just think she portrayed that really well. And Is she still in high school? I, 
I think she might still be in high school. Yeah, she was like 16. I think she is supposed to be in high school. She did sweaty and agitated very well, which I thought was fun. She was just funny, but also really endearing. And um, her interactions with both her siblings and with her mom, I thought were... I liked that family dynamic. I like what she brought to it, like this kind of baby sister. That's on I that. think she also kind of sells <laughs> Drew point of like, this is a group of entitled people that are kind of brats. Like they're still adult brats kind of throwing fits all the time. And hers is way more justified. She's literally a teenager. Nate yeah. is 35 and he's still acting like a teenager. So that's, I, th- I think that's the real reason why Drew likes him as a pragmatic cyclops of this podcast. Drew can just not accept a 35 year old teenager. And me, on the other hand, like <laughs> I love 35 year old teenagers, like, you know, so. Well, I think Claire has an excuse for acting the way she does. She's on meth and she's a teenager. He has an excuse, man. What is it? He's never had to grow up. Dude, his parents, like, I'm not sure. He ran away from his parents and he went and he kind of lives, you know, the cliche, like, privileged white dude. Working on a co-op. Working at a co-op, man. You know, just getting laid all the time. Like, what do you want his excuse to be? He doesn't need an excuse. He doesn't need to, like, keep these troubles on himself. Like, just because everyone else, like, wants to, like, suffer and, like, have this, like, hard journey through life. Like, his isn't, but he's acting like he's being put upon. Drew, to me, you you kind of sound a bit like those people that say people on unemployment or welfare need to just go out and get a job and turn their life around. Like that, like that, that's almost what you sound like to me. I'm not saying like what, why, what, what am I saying that sounds like that? Because I'm Mo. Does it sound like I'm saying that? No, I mean no, but I I, I understand what both of you are saying. It's not acceptable that this guy can have any struggles in life. But it's not acceptable for this guy to make up struggles that never actually existed. Like, it sounds like he had a really supportive family, a nice dad who, like, took him in and, like, very gently showed him, like, the family business. They paid for his college. He dropped out and bummed around Europe, which if you drop out of college and it doesn't seem like he had a job, who the fuck paid for that? And then he has, like, a cush job in, like, a cool city. It's like, what about me thinking that he doesn't necessarily like i just feel like the thing is like people are all their own hero and their own stories and they all want to like have these like struggles and things and like some people don't but they still want to present themselves as like these champions of like overcoming adversity like nate didn't overcome shit yeah see that that's the part (laughs) what he's he's coming to all these like realizations after the loss of his dad so suddenly like all of this dialogue he has with himself is like Oh, I just like lost someone I look up to and that I care about what they think about me. And now I never got to like live up to that for them. You know what I mean? I would say us, we don't really know the dad all that well either. I think if we do watch the series, maybe we might find some stuff out about the dad. It seems like they talk a lot of shit about him, but at the end, it's just like their dad. Almost everything we know about their dad is through their visions of him. So... That might not be their dad. That might just be their perspective of their dad. Yeah, because he appears to them differently. Like, appears to the daughters, like, super cool. Yeah. Naked, playing cards and smoking in another one. Yeah. Nice HBO touch. They're like, here's some nudity. <laughs> no, but that was a cool scene because they're like, don't worry, we'll deal you in next. And it's all these dead people playing cards. Like So, like, the afterlife <laughs> like, no! is just, like, awesome to them. They're just sitting around smoking, <laughs> playing cards. Like, you can't beat that. We got an MVPs. And so now we're just going to continue with the analysis of the pilot 
and the plot and the characters. And we already talked about what I wanted to talk about, which was Nate Jr.'s internal conflict. I don't know, dude. I feel I feel like people who are on like welfare or like unemployment like have had challenges in their life, you know, that have like forced them into that system. Whereas like, yeah, like if you are forced into like welfare or unemployment, like something has probably happened to you. I just don't think anything has happened to Nate up until like the death of his father. Well, maybe maybe that's true. Maybe that isn't true. My my point about that is that someone's suffering is real because they suffer it. For me to like look at someone that's suffering or struggling with something and say that your struggle isn't real, I feel is is insensitive in the way that it's insensitive for conservative people in middle class to look down at people in poverty and say you're on welfare because you're lazy. That sounds like some that sounds like some major both sidesism though. You're like, oh, if that person believes it, it's probably true. Like, dude, people's feelings aren't No, but I think that I think James is right on that one. And even Crystal said it in her podcast once. She said the worst thing that ever happened to you is still gonna be the worst thing that ever happened to you. And that's all relative and that's all, you know, individual and the worst thing that happens to me is not necessarily the worst thing that happens to you, but it doesn't make it not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Okay. I think that's the point James is making, at least in the first part, right? Like what you kind of said, right, Jambo? Yeah, that's 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 a comparison I'm making. I'm not trying to to equivalent the two, but you're delegitimizing his his suffering when his suffering is his suffering and it's real because he suffers it. Like that's like that's my I mean, his suffering is real, but it's a dramatic show. So I mean, I'm supposed to be intrigued by the interplay and the dynamics of the show and like if I think that this dude is like more whiny than like having a lot of pathos that I either identify with or that I want to know more about, like the show's just not accomplishing that for me. And I think when we talked about like coming back to American beauty, like there is, I think like a subsection of like, I call, I want to call it like kind of middle-class suburban on we, like all these people who like have like some of the same like issues and struggles with like finding purpose in life that like a hundred percent of humanity finds. But just like, I've seen that story a lot. Like that's the American beauty story. And it also seems to be the story of Six Feet Under. And I'm sure if I, like, pulled up a list of movies from, like, 1990 to 2005, I would just find a bunch of, like, I'm in the suburbs. I don't know my place in the world. Poor me. And, like, you're right. Like, suffering is suffering. I just feel like maybe if I saw more stories as opposed to just, like, the same story over and over and over again, like, maybe that would, like, have more impact. But that's a different critique than the critique that you made on... Like, it's the same fucking story. I'm tired of it. That's fine. But that's not what you said. You you were saying that he has no reason to suffer. That's that's a different issue than this story is played out. I don't think he has a reason to suffer to that degree. I mean, I think that, like, the two things are coinciding. Like, the suffering of, like, his father, which I think might be, like, his biggest thing, as opposed to, like, the ennui of being 35 and realizing that he doesn't have, like, a greater purpose. We've uh, definitely interpreted and analyzed analyze the pilot so let's let's move into part three mo to the stage to the stage we have stormy daniels dangling threads of interest and so hoisters if for those of you new to the show we are going to step outside of the pilot we're no longer going to talk about the pilot or we're going to try not to and we're going to talk about some of the themes and topics that were we found interesting in this pilot um, so I wanted to throw a quote out there because I think like there's a theme of this pilot, which kind of goes my petardar. Like, I think that 
there are a lot of shows and there's a lot of stories about unhappy families. And so there's a very famous quote um, by Leo Tolstoy from Anna Karina, which is, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. And that quote is more related to marriage, but I do think about it when I think about like these family dramas because the stakes in Six Feet Under and in Home for the Holidays are relatively low. Like it's really just an unhappy family, but it seems like there's just like show after show and movie after movie of like these small intimate portraits of the ways that families are unhappy, you know, or the ways that like families like reveal secrets to each other, long held things. So I don't know. What do you think it is about like that story or that storytelling device that we keep coming back to? There's something about people that, that go through traumatic experiences early on. Or, or, or even creative people like there's like there's a link between suffering diversity at a young age and having creativity. So there's like a maybe an over representation of people that go through really you know traumatic experiences that are you know composers and writers and creative people. There's also a high correlation with people in prison. I think maybe there's something about being a writer or being a creative person that ties into maybe having a dysfunctional family. I do want to push back on that because I have been listening to a podcast or two recently that talk about mental health and specifically um, artists with mental health and issues like that. And I do think it's a fallacy that we think about, like it's an archetype that are like, oh, suffering walks hand in hand with great art when I don't know, like it, it just talked about how there were artists of the time, like they were talking about like Van Gogh and Picasso being like two examples and like people like have this idea that like both of them or one of them like had mental illness and the other didn't and one suffered and the other didn't, but like they both kind of suffered, but they also both received treatment for their mental illness. So, I mean, I think that to me, that's also a little bit linked to like that problematic idea that like artistic genius also goes hand in hand with being difficult or with being like a bad person. And I think that like, those are archetypes and ideas, but I don't, I would like to see more research put towards linking those things outside of like a popular opinion. Yeah. I can't, I can't recall my source, but their, but their point was just that there's a correlation, not necessarily that, that it's uh causal. Okay. That's interesting though. I can, I could see why that would be a stereotype. Um, I guess when we're talking about mental health and artists, I can help, but think of um, Yayoi Musama, I think her name is. Have you, it's like on everyone's Instagram and shit. She does like the infinity room. Not on mine. <laughs> she, the infinity room. A lot of it, her, her art. Well, not a lot of it, but she's more famous for doing like these mirrored rooms with water. And you go in there for like 15 seconds by yourself. And it's very quiet. And it looks like you're in the middle of space almost. No. Anyway, she is diagnosed schizophrenic. And she's she's from Japan and she totally I mean, she just works on her art as if it's an, like a, her work and she leaves the mental she like checks herself into a mental health facility, does her work for eight hours and then comes back um, and does that every day. And is just a, living a totally satisfying life, but does have mental health issues. Yeah, I feel like maybe that archetype or stereotype gets blown up by like the sheer number of people with mental health issues in the world. Because, like, not everyone who has mental health stuff going on is, like, an artist of any kind, you know? So, I mean... But, I mean, originally we were talking about the unhappy families. We spiraled. Does anyone really have a happy family? I mean, or is this no. just another lie we tell ourselves? I think it's a lie we tell ourselves for sure. 
Well, that's why I like the Corinna quote, because it's like, you know, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own unique way. But I think, like, the flip side of that is, like, it's not exactly unique, because I think you're right. Like, I think that might be a myth. Sometimes I do get tired of, like, the tropes and the archetypes, and I think that some things carry them off better than others. And I just continually see, like, I don't know, some holiday movies I like when they bring in the unhappy family, because, like, things are kind of, like, happy-ended by the end of it. But it just kind of seems like every year there's, like, some Oscar movie... It's just like a family with some secrets and they all have dramatic moments where they yell at each other and then things are kind of better by the end. Well, imagine if people started writing stories about happy families, like how long would that take to get burnt out? I don't know, but it'd be different. There'd be no conflict. Like they all got together and had a great time. The (laughs) end. There's no story there, like It'd be like Seventh Heaven. (laughs) <laughs> yeah conflict drives the story seventh heaven ran for nine seasons mo it was very successful family matters the cosby's yeah there you go i mean you're naming some shows with like some happy Full families we're like i don't know fresh prince of bel-air had a fresh prince of bel-air had like a happy family and they had like some good comedy maybe comedies have happy families sometimes <laughs> this is us <laughs> No, they're kind of, no, they're not happy. They're very dramatic and like have, have problems. No, they're, they're angsty as fuck. But that's, I think that would be a good example of how it's done better on the other side of the spectrum. But anyway, we're not talking about the pilot right now. What are we talking about? Whether or not there's such a thing as happy family. Part of me wants to go back to like stoicism. Like if, if your expectation is to have like the perfect family, you're never going to be satisfied. And if your like expectation is just to accept the people you love because that's all you can really do, then I think you're going to have a happy family. So I think your expectations and perspective is going to frame your happy family a lot as well. That's a great point, Jimbo. I'm cool with that one. I want to do Jimbo's second. We have two drastically different perspectives on death funerals morning we have david this is dexter and we have nate this is the older brother and so one of them is very professional hide anyone that's grieving because you don't want to upset anyone and the other person is kind of this primal just let it all out and let people go crazy in the funeral home and so what's what's our perspective what's what's right how how should we deal with with death around other people well i think what's right is that there is no right way I just think it depends on the person. So I would say that that goes more into yeah. Nate, right? I, I think Nate is fine if you just want to like mourn quietly. So so you would probably side with Nate. Like if someone wants to scream, like let them. We don't need to hide them in right. the back room. Yeah, I just, yeah, it's so individual and your feelings are so, it's like a snowflake. <laughs> Grief is like a snowflake. Well, I think the answer is kind of like in the middle as long as it doesn't affect other people. Because like I think where the conflict is, is like David's definition of mourning and grief like infringes on Nate's process and Nate's process infringes on David, you know? So like we can say that like Nate wants to go crazy and do everything, like grieve the way he wants, but that's not the way David wants to grieve. And so like both of their expectations for the funeral, like take away from the other's experience. I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to side with Nate. I don't necessarily agree that David doesn't want to grieve that way. I mean, I think there's maybe some hints in the pilot, but, but I, but let's not talk about that now. I think David is looking at it as a professional, you know, like he's, it's professionalism and they think the business is going to do better by keeping people. I think that's the way he's processing his father's death. I mean, I think that he pushes everything away until he gets to his boyfriend's house and he breaks down. So I think the way that he copes with it. And he mourns in a way that Nate would 
Yeah, but I mean, he's not comfortable mourning the way that Nate does in public, and that's who he is. I mean, but I mean, if you what you're saying is like that, Nate's way of doing it is like grieving and mourning the way that you want, like. The way that David wants to do it is it seems that David wants to throw himself into his work completely as a way to, like, honor his father. Like, the conversation that David has with his father is about what he's doing for him. You know, like, wow, he's embalming him. But David takes away someone that's that's mourning and sends him to another room. When when David's or, or when their mom starts starts, like, crying, he takes her away to the back room. He doesn't let her cry in front of people. He hides her. I know. Well, Nate's not the only one there either. David wants it to be orderly and he wants to show respect for his father by, you know, like this was his father's job. This was his father's profession. This was what he like devoted his life to. That's how he chose to honor him. He probably thought that giving him the best possible, you know, funeral experience was like the last thing he could do for his father. Well, I just I just think that neither of them are right. I think at the end of the day, the answer is there is no right perspective. And all you have to do is just like, respect the other person's experience or especially people that are if it was in the family like each other's but i think western society in general prefers david's yeah that's uh, yeah that's that's what i meant by david versus nate i was i was talking more like structure you know society like quiet respect versus nate just kind of emotional and more raw well, I mean, I don't think that society goes out of its way to, like, suppress and repress emotion. I think that, like, that place, I think our inclination to do things that way comes from David's inclination, that he thinks it's respectful. I, I think it's I think it's a Western European thing. Unless you're in Sicily. I, I guess, but that was, like, village. Having done Peace Corps, right? Like, in Mo- just living in Mozambique, don't you feel that you were exposed to the notion of death a little bit more than you would than you were here oh for sure oh yeah i don't know what it is about it i remember one of my first weeks at one of my jobs we that was like a question our boss asked us which is like whatever about death and like have you ever seen a dead body or have you ever um been to a funeral or you know like have you ever seen someone die and I bet you if you did a poll in Mozambique of people and asked them that question, like way more of them would say yes to those things. Whereas none of us have ever like I've never seen anybody like die, like seen them in the act of dying or. And I just think that that's a product of society and not necessarily like a byproduct of wanting to honor someone, you know, I think it's. But it might also be a byproduct of our wealth. Yeah, pub, I was going to say that, that's a public health issue as well. Uh, yeah, totally. Like when more people are dying, you see death more. For some reason, I, I was a little surprised at at people grieving in, in Mozambique over, over death because for some reason I had this stupid stereotype that they would be more accepting with death because they, for, for the same reason you said, Mo, because they experience and deal with death more often that they would like desensitize yeah you would think about yeah yes exactly but they weren't at all like i would even say they were a little more emotional and raw in the where it's like huh so i mean like obviously my my preconceived idea was was completely false (laughs) my host mother died during my service like early on and so i went down back to our training village to spend time with my family and there was a lot of raw emotion, but there was there was also some, like, reticence, you know? Like, um, they took me out to, like, the... Um, I missed her 
like her burial ceremony by like 10 days. But um, my host family like took me to the graveyard and um, there was like some comforting of like my little brother. Like there was kind of some gender stereotype, you know, that his older brother was asking him not to cry, but he was still crying, you know. And then I I kind of rehearsed something to say to them in Portuguese, so I wasn't catching everything. But that was, um, yeah, I mean, there was definitely like a different type of experience and a different type. I never attended a funeral in Mozambique. Most of it was more than one of my students, his his girlfriend had a miscarriage, although I think her family probably sent her to get an abortion. But he like was really, really having a difficult time with it. And I was kind of surprised at that as well. But like, yeah, like I went and I hung out with him. And I spent some time with him and he was he was just like really upset for maybe a few days. I mean, like once again, I was surprised, but like it just shows you that, yeah, your stereotypes about other cultures are usually wrong. Totally. Sensitive spot to end on. We're going to move into part four. This is our fun and nonsensical part of the pilot. And Drew's going to host Pitar Trivia. Rapid fire. Rapid fire Pitar Trivia. Moe's buzzer sounds like this. Buzz. James's buzzer sounds like this. Death. Okay. And the uh, the questions will vary by answer. This was actually Michael C. Hall's first on-screen role. So that's Dexter's first on-screen role. He had just come off the lead in what Broadway musical? Ding, ding, ding. Or buzz. Go. I, I don't know why, but I want to say cabaret. And I don't know what the second one. Okay, I'm just going to say cabaret, whatever. You are correct. It's cabaret. And Jimbo remains salty about me doing these questions. Okay. <laughs> so this one's a fill in the blank. Um, what major metropolitan um, West Coast city does Nate formerly reside in? Ding, ding, death. ding. Mo, you did actually say buzz. So oh. Jimbo did say death. Seattle. Seattle is correct. So it's That's 1 where I to live. 0.5. All right, there you go. Yep, I know, Mo. I always play myself with these buzzers. Federico in the show show this is a fill in the blank. Closest answer wins. Federico in the show shows a picture of a young child to Nate as his son. The actor Federico has a real life family connection to that picture, like the kid in that picture. What is that family connection? Buzz. That's not a fill in the blank. The family connection is a fill in the blank. You will fill in the blank of what the family connection is. Okay, fine. It's an open-ended question. Yes. <laughs> the blank is at the end. Mo? It is a picture of him when he was little. Okay. Jimbo? Oh, I was going to guess that. Um, that's his real-life son. That is his real-life son. So nice. Oh, Jimbo has two points. So to obvious. Point. Yeah, it's so <laughs> obvious. I, I was thinking that it was maybe himself as well, Mo. You actually, I'm glad you answered first. <laughs> So at, at the meth den, um, as the 16-year-old is freebasing some meth and she's sitting next to her <laughs> skeevy boyfriend, fill in the blank question or, you know, what was the answer to this one? How does the skeevy boyfriend describe the sex but, on meth? Yes, Mo. He said it makes it more primal. That is absolutely correct. So <laughs> 1.5 to 2. It's a question meant for Mo. Nice. Perfect. <laughs> going in. Oh, okay. Dang. So here is a wild guess question because we referenced that the series finale is interesting. Okay. What makes the series finale unique? Closest answer wins. <laughs> Death. Go ahead, Jimbo. Um, all the characters die and they play poker in hell. 
Okay. Mo, do you want to respond? What makes it unique is that they have built in ads for products to preserve dead people. And you actually get to see the embalming and all that stuff. That's pretty unique. Okay, Jimbo is actually correct because the series finale has the death what, of every single right major answer? character. There is, yeah, and Jimbo got it. Oh. Um, the series finale actually has the death of every single character. Now, what's going to happen as the show goes on, and I actually remember this from watching the first season, is the show's a little bit like Law and Order in that um, there the show always opens with a unique death, and so you always see like a cold open of a character who's not a member of the show, and that person dies. So like. The series finale jumps around in time. And so it's not that every single character dies like by the end in of the, the time show. for that episode. Oh, I see. But as you watch the series finale, you kind of see people, the main characters dying. So Jimbo was, you were like 75% right. Yeah. They don't show nice. them playing cards in hell, but they do show every they single were. main character dying. They were. So Jimbo, there you go. It's a win. Oh, my first loss. Yep, most first loss. <laughs> there you go. All right, Hoisters, this, uh, if you can't tell by the plugs I'm about to announce, uh, the show's officially over, but if you love us as much as we love us, we might stick around for a couple more minutes. Our intro-outro music was mixed by Jake Drew. Click on his name in the show notes and you can get him to make you some intro or outro music. As always, follow our blog subscribe to us on your podcast app and follow us on twitter instagram join our facebook group uh you can find my movie columns things at but why the podcast.com uh along with some of our older episodes too you can also find me at pilots and batards on twitter mo you want to plug anything mm, no yeah there's you know there's there's three twitter links in the show notes go ahead and follow all three of those one's mine and then one's the podcast and one's drew and take the survey. Just do it. Yeah, take the survey. It's four minutes of your life, and it's going to contribute to being the podcast you want to hear in the world. All right, guys, shop talk, shop talk, shop talk. Seattle's dark, dude. Is it this dark in Oregon, James? The sun will set a little bit earlier than you, but yeah, it's it's dark, man. It's like literally dark by four o'clock. Okay, that's because it's so cloudy all the time. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like the sun is never there, pretty much, and then it just by four o'clock it's dark. Yeah, that's how Portland was. Southern Oregon, where my parents live, and and where yeah. I grew up, is has a lot more clear days, and so it's yeah. it's not always like that. But yeah, dude, get used to that. I need to get a happy lamp. Dude, your apartment looks cold as shit too. You're like wrapped up in a blanket. It's You're making cold. me cold it- just looking at you. Turn your heater yeah. on, man. You're making that cheddar now. It's it's noisy. That sucks. Get some earplugs. No, just for the pot, for the recording. I didn't oh, want to do it, it during okay, the recording. Okay. Thanks, Mo. Ah, yeah. yeah. Just say, yeah no, Keep this it shit, on during I'm, the day. <laughs> I'm like, I'm literally gonna turn this shit on the minute we hang up. My nose is like running. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, we try not to use it too much because it is expensive. But now we got these yeah. curtains. Oh, and yeah, it's yeah we got those fancy curtains too. The game ones. changer, at least because now we'll turn it on and it'll actually get warm so we can turn it off. Before, it was just like blowing straight out. Like we just couldn't keep the place warm, but now the curtains make a difference. Nice. What's up with y'all? Uh, you know, paternity leave is coming to oh, an no. end soonish, but 
it's going to be okay. Like, I'll go back to work. And uh, Little Messy is going to be in daycare by February. What? Yeah. Like, Tori has a job. I have a job. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. They should, they should let women bring babies to work. This country should do a lot of things for mothers. So one of my um, friends back home, their baby's a week older than, than Jamie, and she can't drink from a bottle. They've never fed her from a bottle. So she goes to work with mom every day. Oh, wow. Wait, what? Is it like too late to show her how to drink out of a bottle? She just can't. She can't do it for whatever reason. I, I mean, I don't know if that what the medical condition is with that, but uh, yeah, the kid, the kid can't drink from a bottle. Hasn't ever drink from a bottle every time. It's been from the mom. Wow. So, so she should start eating some some food soon because it's like six months now. So, right. But that's crazy. Yeah. So mom takes the kid to work, and she's got a job that's that allows that. So. Yeah, I was wondering that though. Like, what if she? D- if it was a medical thing, what would happen? Yeah. I feel like you could legally defend yourself and be like, my yeah, for kid sure. can't eat without me. So sorry. And she works in, in kind of a, a liberal town at least. So they're probably a lot more accepting this, this town. It's like legal to walk around naked. So it's Ashland. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, nice... Oh yeah. I have some friends. Yeah. So I'm not sure how much that contributes to it, but there's a good chance that people are, are cool with, a mother, a working mother, bringing their baby in. Yeah, I I agree, dude. Kids should kids should go to work. Why not? They did in Mozambique, man. Going back to our Peace Corps. <laughs> I know. There you go. <laughs> they were everywhere. Yeah, for for three Peace Babies Corps podcast everywhere. hosts, we talk about Peace Corps so little. I know. We talk about pilots. Maybe we should. I was talking to Shrek Breath. Oh, he was like, "You guys never bring it up." I'm like, "Yeah, it has to come up organically." We bring it up pretty much because we watched so much fucking TV in Peace Corps. Also, that. A lot of these pilots, mm. at least for me, I watched them in, in Peace Corps. Well, I I also feel like being in Peace Corps trained us to be podcast hosts because I think that at its base, like podcasts are supposed to be smart people talking about dumb things. And being in Peace Corps, especially like when we were there and like in years before that, like there's a lot of time to sit around and talk about like dumb things with smart people. I know. I every day I say, why didn't I start a podcast in the Peace Corps, man? It'd be running for like eight years now. We'd be superstars. <laughs> I'd be good at it. Recording would have been impossible. <laughs> no, easy. How? Forrest, Forrest and I used to record on our computers, music and crap. You had electricity. There you go. I didn't. didn't. We 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 charged our computers on a generator when we at night there when it, during night they ran a generator for the night classes yeah that's true so you need to have energy source yeah that would have been really hard we had, we had energy the second year because then for me to for you, having to you didn't choose, have energy at all no never i had a gener yeah. i had a, like a little battery i would charge just so i could have a light bulb it only charged a light bulb oh wow nice yeah well <laughs> i mean you could have recorded on your phone but yeah you would have had to charge that eventually too it's precious though. It's like, mm, should I watch the season finale of this show or record? I'm gonna watch the season finale. Yeah, there that's you why you're not <laughs> gonna be a famous podcaster, Mo. You know, you're gonna... <laughs> my work ethic is all off. Oh, all right, guys, I want to turn the heater on. So, should we sign off? Every day we hoistling, Drew out. Every day we hoistling, Jimbo out. Every day we hoistling, Mo out.